All right, so the topic is the, uh, the Abrahamic promises in the book of Galatians, subtitle, An Exercise in Christotelic Hermeneutics. And we'll, we'll define exactly what that means shortly. And it's also helpful, I think it'll in part answer Jack's last question if you were in here about other systems of theology also affirm both discontinuity and continuity. And he asked, is it a matter of difference, differences and a matter of different emphases? And it absolutely is. But I hope that I'll show from the text, I hope I'll show that uh, it's not so much a matter of differences or emphases, but consistency. I think New Covenant theology, in terms of a system of theology or a hermeneutical system, is the most consistently Christ-centered uh, system of theology. So I hope to demonstrate that from the text. So as, as Gary emphasized uh, one of the key tenets in this whole discussion is the New Testament use of the Old Testament. To me, that is the fundamental hermeneutic which sets New Covenant theology apart. So I think it'd be helpful to do that, you know, actually see what Paul does in particular with the, uh, the Abrahamic narrative. And as we do it, I think we'll see how New Covenant theology in particular uh, is most consistent with what Paul does in the letter to the Galatians. This is a one of my favorite topics. In fact, this, this talk is sort of an expansion of three short chapters in my little book, Union with Christ, if you're interested in uh, some of the notes there. So Genesis 12 is obviously the all-important chapter. So if you've got a Bible, and I hope you do grab it, open it to Genesis chapter 12. And most of you all don't need any context, but, but maybe you do. So just what's the story so What's the story so far? What's the story of God so far as we get to Genesis chapter 12? Actually, lots has happened. Uh, it's been pretty bleak. Genesis 3 to 11 in particular, quite bleak. You have Adam in the fall, and then you have Noah, and then you have the city builders, Babel, Genesis 10 and 11, and Babel was about human achievements. Uh, they wanted to make a name for themselves, and Moses notes, ironically, in 11.7, the Lord still has to come down to see what they're up to. And these these Builders are striving for a great name, and in Genesis 12, we see that it's God who gives great names. God's going to give Abram the great name that the builders are striving for. But chapter 11 does leave us with the question, is God finished with the nations? Has his patience run out? And Genesis 12 is God's response. Christopher Wright, in his superb book, uh, The Mission of God, which we'll talk more about tomorrow, he writes this. What can God do next? Something that only God could have thought of. He sees an elderly, childless couple in the land of Babel and decides to make them the fountainhead, the launch pad of his whole mission of cosmic redemption. We can almost hear the sharp intake of breath among the heavenly hosts when the astonishing plan was revealed. They knew, as the reader of Genesis 1 to 11 now knows, the sheer scale of devastation that serpentine evil and human recalcitrance have wrought in God's creation. What sort of an answer can be provided through Abram and Sarai? Yet that is precisely the scale of what now follows. The call of Abram is the beginning of God's answer to the evil of human hearts, the strife of nations, and the groaning brokenness of his whole creation. A new world, ultimately a new creation, begins in this text. But it's a new world that bursts out of the womb of the old, the old world portrayed in Genesis 1 to 11, end quote. So we have a transitional passage then here in Genesis 12. It's, it's from Adam to Abraham, who in many ways functions as a new Adam. It brings about a new phase 
of redemptive history. As Wright mentioned, a whole new creation evolves here. That's why Paul in Romans 4 can speak of this narrative and call God the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. A rabbinic midrash on Genesis has God say, I will make Adam first, and if he goes astray, I will send Abram to sort it all out. It's actually pretty good commentary on the storyline of Scripture. So let's look at Genesis 12. We'll just read the all-important first three verses of Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land and your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And it's really important to understand uh, the structure of this passage. There's actually two imperatives, although the English often doesn't uh, portray that, but there's two commands. Each command is followed by three promises. So you have go to Abram, go from your land, commandment one, and then you have three promises. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. Second command, be a blessing. With, followed by three promises, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. So there's, there's the structure, two commands, three promises, but there's, two, there's only two goals here, though. Notice, there's a twofold agenda here in this all-important passage. Notice, first, Abram and his family will just summarize by saying they will receive blessing. Verses 1 to 3a. And then the, uh, the second goal here is is 3b not only will he receive blessing but he will be the mediator of blessing first you you will be blessed Abram and your family and then you will be the means of blessing to all the peoples of the earth so two twofold structure and this final clause here all peoples on earth will be blessed through you is the principal statement of these verses so a twofold agenda and as you well know it's very hard to overstate the importance of this passage for not only the redemptive history for the story of Scripture, but for all of reality, because this is reality. Extremely important. As William Dumbrell says, this is the theological blueprint for the redemptive history of the worlds. Uh, Williamson calls it the Bible's Magna Carta. Bach and Blazing writes, The Abrahamic covenant consequently sets forth the foundational relationship between God and all humankind from Abraham onward. This means that to understand the Bible, one must read it in view of the Abrahamic covenant. For that covenant with Abraham is the foundational framework for interpreting the scripture and the history of redemption, which it reveals. As Paul is going to say much later in Galatians, here we have the gospel in advance. And of course, there's three main elements of blessing that are promised here. We have land, offspring, and blessing. Land isn't mentioned in these three. It is in verse 7 and then throughout the narrative. So land, offspring, and blessing. Offspring or seed, and when I say that, I'm obviously saying the same thing, but I'll try to be consistent. Land, seed, and blessing. And I think, the, I think 12 and 15 or 17 are all the same covenant. There are others who disagree, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter a lot in terms of where I'm heading. The relationship begins in chapter 12. It's formalized in chapter 17 and then uh, confirmed. Excuse me. Formalized in chapter 15, you all recall the, the self-maledictory oath where, where Abraham's snoozing while the Lord walks through and, and, and says he's going to keep the, keep the promises himself, and then it's confirmed in 17. 
Okay, so, so really looking at three main aspects then of this Abrahamic narrative. Land, seed, blessing. We're going to ask, how does, Paul, how does Paul approach these three aspects of blessing, specifically in the book of Galatians? We'll look at a few other places, and there's a lot of places that we could ask how New Testament writers approach the Abrahamic narrative. But we're going to look at Galatians because I think it's uh, most clear, and I, like you, love the book of Galatians. So flip over to Galatians then, chapter 3. Just for the sake of context, these are familiar verses. If not, they should be. Uh, but let's just to get a, a, a bigger picture, let's go ahead and read 1 to 16 of chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, who has hypnotized you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was vividly portrayed as crucified? I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now going to be made complete by the flesh? Did you suffer so much for nothing, if in fact it was for nothing? So then, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Then understand that those who have faith are Abraham's sons. Now the Scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and told the good news ahead of time to Abraham, saying, quote, all the nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham, who had faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Because it is written, everyone who does not continue doing everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Brothers, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to even a human covenant that has been ratified. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed who is Christ. And I want to give you my presuppositions. I want to lay them out on the table. Uh, I do come from a New Covenant perspective, but I do so because I feel like it's the system of theology that is most consistently informed by biblical theology. And I have a very rigorously literal reading of 2 Corinthians 1.20 that no matter how many of the promises of God, they are yes in Christ Jesus. I want you to know that before we begin this exercise. I want us to adopt a Christotelic hermeneutic. This phrase is used by many, uh, Daniel Kirk, Mark Boda, Peter Enns, I don't endorse uh, all of any of these guys, or all of anyone for that matter, but Peter Enns writes this, to read the Old Testament Christotelically is to read it already knowing that Christ is somehow the end, the telos, to which the Old Testament story is heading. In other words, to read the Old Testament in light of the exclamation point of the history of Revelation, the death and resurrection of Christ, end quote. So as, as, as Brother Gary's already showed us, the New Testament 
provides God-breathed commentary on the Old Testament. We must interpret the Old Testament as disciples. For Christian Bible readers, we cannot approach the Old Testament as if the New Testament had not been written. LaRondale writes this, The Christian understanding of the Old Testament is determined by the Christocentric focus by which the New Testament writers interpreted the Hebrew Scriptures. The key to the Old Testament is not a rationalistic method or principle, be it literalism or allegorism, but Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as revealed in the New Testament. The Christian interpreter of the Old Testament is once for all obliged to read the Hebrew Scriptures in the light of the New Testament as a whole, because the Old Testament is interpreted authoritatively under divine inspiration in the New Testament as God's continuous history of salvation. So yes, the New Testament obviously teaches us about the New Covenant, teaches us about Jesus, but it also teaches us about Genesis. Jesus says this. Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. So Galatians then, recall the context. I think you all are probably very familiar with uh, the context of Galatians. You have Judaizers wanting to... uh, caused Gentiles to live like Jews. Yes, they believed in Jesus. Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus is necessary. Jesus is just not sufficient. You must complete yourself through the flesh by following the law, circumcision, food, law, Sabbath, all those things. They, they were confused. The Judaizers were confused on what time it is in redemptive history. So the batteries are all mixed up. So Paul's got the agenda to say, hey, here's where we are in redemptive history. Christ has come. The old covenant's obsolete. Quit being foolish, Galatians. But notice, though, the Judaizers, what would they have used in their argumentation to try to convince the Gentiles to become like Jews? Obvious question. They would have used their Bibles, right? They would have used the Old Testament. In particular, they would have used the Abraham narrative. You want to be sons of Abraham? You've got to be circumcised like Abraham. Genesis 17, it says eternal. They would have utilized Abraham. So that's why Abraham features large in the letter of Galatians, because Paul's flipping the script on him in a sense. So we're going to look at uh, just a brief look at each of these three principal promises, offspring, blessing, and land. And these are really good test cases for hermeneutics or for biblical theology or for system theology. These things are all so related. Land and offspring in particular, just like Sabbath and baptism, are really good test cases because one's view on these things will be determined by how we put the Old Testament and the New Testament together. That makes sense. So land and offspring, and really blessing, but land and offspring in particular are really good test cases for our hermeneutic and testing our hermeneutic. So number one, offspring. Offspring, it can be a very, uh, very contentious issue, and there's there's obviously room for discussion. But I think it it because it's contentious, we need to address it all the more. And I, I want to argue that there is a specific, consistent. New Covenant approach to the question of the offspring of Abraham. As we know well, if not, you need to know well, there are four seeds of Abraham. If you haven't read John Riesinger's book, Abraham's Four Seeds, repent right now, and then as soon as I'm finished, go buy a copy. Seriously. That book is extremely important. I just reread it this year. I actually hadn't read it in several years and was just refreshed anew by how important that book is. So that's a, that's a must-read for everyone. So There are four, four senses to Abraham's offspring. We could call them the physical, the physical special, the Christological, and the ecclesial. And the key to understanding Paul's reworking of the offspring of Abraham is found in chapter 3, verse 16. Let's read it again. 
Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one. And to your seed, who is Christ. As uh, Hayes, New Testament scholar Richard Hayes writes, Paul's understanding of Jesus Christ as the one true heir of the promise made to Abraham is the essential theological presupposition for his hermeneutical strategies. Here, offspring or seed is singular, and Paul finds that important. But it can also be plural in meaning. It's a collective noun, much like our fish or sheep, although I see fishes on occasion. We'll just stick with sheep. It can be one, it can be many. Paul finds this significant. Christ is the offspring or son of Abraham in a unique sense. And if we had time, we would develop this in the text of Genesis itself. I think Paul is reflecting on Genesis 22, 18, where Jacob says that nations indeed an assembly of nations will come from him. An assembly of nations, a nation, Israel, and an assembly of nations will come from Jacob. Genesis 22, 18. Uh, It says, all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring, singular. So there's singular offspring, even in Genesis itself, that points toward this type of interpretation. So Paul is a biblical theologian. Paul's a a canonical exegete. I was struck recently by the fact that Paul had 14 years alone. I mean, this dude was doing work in his Hebrew Bible. He's thought very carefully about about the connections here. So he's a canonical exegete, and his interpretation here is legitimate because it depends on the storyline. Later on, we read in 2 Samuel 7, famous covenant with David, another mention of a singular seed. Let me just read it for you. 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 14. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever, I will, be to a fa- I will be a father to him, and he shall be to me a son. The Davidic king, David would have a son who would be a great king. This idea of kings is found again in the Genesis narrative, in the Abraham narrative. Abraham and Sarah are told that kings will come from you. Genesis 17, verse 6. And among the offspring, one of them will be kings. It's repeated to Jacob in Genesis 35, 11. Kings will come from you. Long before the, the monarchy. David was this offspring of Abraham, and his greater son is Jesus, the Messiah, who is a corporate head over his people. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. This could be demonstrated from many places. Uh, We'll just look at, you don't have to turn there, but Luke's record of Mary's Song of Praise confirms this. And here, let me plug an article uh, by Dr. Hamilton, who will be with us later. He's got an article, and you can get it for free on his website. I think it's jimhamilton.info. And it's an article in Tyndale Bulletin called the seed, of, uh, the seed of the Woman and the Blessing of Abraham. Really well done biblical theology on making these connections. And he, sh- he shows this from Luke as well. When Mary, recall, when Mary hears that she will bear a son of the Most High, who will be given the throne of David, 2 Samuel 7, to reign forever, she concludes her song of praise with these words. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. It's also confirmed a little bit later in Zechariah's prophecy. Luke 1, 67 to 75 records this. 
His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, 2 Samuel 7. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the land of our enemies, hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So Jesus is the singular offspring of Abraham, who's also the singular offspring of David. He's the singular offspring of David who brings the blessing of Abraham. So Paul's reading is uh, very legitimate. Quite compelling. The promises to Israel, of course, and this is sometimes overlooked, were contingent on Israel's faithfulness. Jesus, the son of Abraham and David, is the only faithful Israelite. Remember, all of God's promises find their yes in him. It's worth quoting at length here uh, Russell Moore. He writes this, Both covenant theology and dispensationalism discuss Israel and the church without taking into account the Christocentric nature of biblical eschatology. The future restoration of Israel has never been promised to the unfaithful, unregenerate members of the nation, only to the faithful remnant. The church is not Israel, at least not in a direct, unmediated sense. The remnant of Israel, a biological descendant of Abraham, a circumcised Jewish firstborn who is approved of by God for his obedience to the covenant, receives all of the promises due to him. Dispensationalists are right that only ethnic Jews receive the promised future restoration, but Paul makes clear that the seed of Abraham is singular, not plural. Galatians 3.16. However, the singular definition of seed is not, it does not exhaust Paul's theology of seed, because even in this very chapter, Paul uses it to refer to many. He uses it in a collective sense. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Then understand that those who have faith, those who have faith are Christians, right? Those who have faith are Abraham's sons. That's another way of saying Christians are Israel, those who have faith. Chapter 3, let's read 26 to 29 again. Or we didn't read that, so let's read 26 to 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ like a garment. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no Jew or Greek. No Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. In verse 29 there, uh, the you is plural. Now, Texans don't have any issues with this kind of thing because we have the word y'all. That's what it ought to be here. Read it again. And if y'all belong to Christ, then y'all are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So Paul not only has a Christotelic hermeneutic, he also has an ecclesiotelic hermeneutic. In other words, it's not simply Christ, but it's also Christ and his body, because, of course, there's a head-body relationship between Christ and his people, isn't there? It's, It's an organic connection. In biblical typology, it's not Christ alone who's the antitype, but Christ and his people in a united, unbreakable, organic unity in God's saving purpose for the world. Again, let me quote Russ Moore. 
uh, continuing the quote from earlier, in Christ, I inherit all the promises due to Abraham's offspring so that everything that's true of him is true of me. The future of Israel then does belong to Gentile believers, but only because they are in union with a Jewish Messiah. So seed is, is, is rich for so many reasons in the biblical storyline, but it's also rich just in the nature of the metaphor itself. Seed is, is a, a re, it's reproductive in nature, isn't it? One seed can produce many seeds. So is the offspring of Abraham, is it Jesus, or is it the church? Yes. Just like the temple, right? Is the temple Jesus, or is it the church? Yes. Multi-layered reading, all focused on Christ, and the rest falls into place once we see his centrality. It's all got to be run through this Christological grid. And as, as I'll show, as I've already shown a little bit, some things just get bypassed in some systems of theology. So the church does inherit the Abrahamic promises by being in Christ. Did you notice the way he said it? So important in 329. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. We're co-heirs. This is what Moore said when he said, it's not that the church is Israel in a direct, unmediated sense. It's that Israel is Jesus is the church. You've got to get that. And only New Covenant theology can get that, and I'll show you why. Union with Christ, then, is central to understanding the relationship between Israel and the church. This is the ecclesial sense of Abraham's offspring mentioned above, and this is something that covenant theology doesn't get. Or oftentimes, I've read in some places where they'll affirm it, but then there's all kinds of implications that you just want to ask about. How can you say that? I was recently, I was doing a paper in the fall on, uh, on baptism, and I was reading Robert Lethem, who's a very fine theologian, uh, as, as are especially these, uh, the Philly guys, the Westminster Philly guys. But oftentimes, I just want to say, man, you're right here. I'm falling off that, that pedo-baptism pedo line. Um, because if you push the, what they're saying to the, to the wall, it doesn't fit the system of, of pedo-baptism. In fact, let me tell you a story. You may not have time for this, but, but it's my discretion on Q&A. Uh, uh, I'm, at, I'm at Southwestern Seminary right now, and there's a, there was a new uh, professor there, and I don't go to chapel very often uh, for many reasons, but um, we'll say I don't have time. But I wanted to go to convocation, and they were introducing a new professor. His name's John Yo, And he was introduced as one who was at RTS, the main campus. I don't even know where it's at, but he was at RTS, and he came to a Baptistic and dispensational reading of Scripture, so we hired him at Southwestern. Here he is, and he signs his statement and, and is introduced, and I'm just like, wow, because I rarely hear about that. I often hear about the opposite, but I rarely hear people who are from an RTS coming to a Southwestern or a DTS, so I was like, I had to talk to this guy and see what, what happened, because he was he had been through Westminster West, uh, MDiv, and then I forgot, but maybe it was RTS where he got his PhD, and he was then teaching Old Testament, so I thought, okay, I'm meeting with this guy, so I email him, and uh, I meet with him. It turns out he's not dispensational. He was just introduced that way. But what was going on was he was teaching Jeremiah 31 in class. He's Presbyterian seminary, and he's teaching Jeremiah 31 and what the new covenant would be like, as Brother Gary unpacked for us. And he's just teaching the text. And a student in class says, uh, you're a Baptist, just out loud. Because he's saying, in the new covenant, there will be no need to teach another fellow citizen. All will, be, all will know the Lord in the new covenant. And so this is Ella's student, uh, who I found out later was David Mathis. Some of you might know that name. You're a Baptist. And Dr. Yo says, uh, no, I'm, I'm a PCA minister 
and I'm, uh, you know, I'm at a PCA seminary. I'm baptized babies. And that was it. He moved on. Um, David Mathis came up to him afterwards and said, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, you know, get too zealous there, but let me tell you what I mean. And he kind of explained the implications of what he was saying. And uh, Dr. Yo was busy. He put it, he put it off and didn't, didn't really think about it much until it came up a little bit later when his son was getting to the age of baptism. And he remembered this conversation. He remembered Jeremiah 31. And so he started looking into it again, and he looked at a debate between Tom Schreiner and one of his colleagues. And uh, Tom, he said, in his words, Tom Schreiner just swept the floor with the guy, particularly on Colossians 2. And uh, so this guy is convinced by Scripture that the new covenant consists of believers only. So he has to go to his boss. I think he was on staff at the church. If not, he was an elder. And uh, his, his elders first say, I can't baptize my son anymore. I'm going to have to resign my position here. And then the next conversation is to his boss to say, I'm sorry, I don't align with the confession at this school anymore. And this is a young guy. Um, might be 40. Got two or three or four kids. I'm not sure. And I just could, I was so encouraged. Would that more Presbyterians had the conviction to follow the path that Scripture took them, but their jobs would be lost? And the Lord provided for this guy. He did lose his job, obviously, but he provided, and now he's teaching at Southwestern, and uh, I was sure to give him some New Covenant uh, material and say there's actually another option here. Uh, but man, how encouraging, right, that we would follow Scripture. Well, not all do. Louis Burkhoff states that the Abrahamic Covenant is primarily spiritual and, quote, is essentially identical with the New Covenant of the present dispensation. So it's spiritual, and it's basically the same, essentially identical with the New Covenant. He argues that since infants were included in the old dispensation as an integral part, notice Reformed people say dispensation. The Westminster Confession of Faith uses the word dispensation. Sometimes dispensationalists talk about the history of dispensationalism, and if there's the word dispensation, they are dispensationalists. Uh, Burkhoff wasn't quite a dispensationalist, but he can speak of dispensations. He says if, if, if infants were included in the old dispensation as an integral part of the people of God, so they should not be excluded from the New Covenant community. Abraham and his seed were to receive the sign of circumcision. Therefore, the believer and their seed is to receive the sign of baptism, which replaces circumcision. But Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, which is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So Jesus, as the final covenant mediator, brings significant change. shouldn't have to say that, right? Jesus, the incarnation in Pentecost, brings change. Significant typological advance in the storyline, which covenant theology doesn't grasp. What they miss here is the determinant role of the mediatorial head of the covenant. So covenant theology teaches that, that the believer is to baptize the, their seed, just, just like Abraham was to circumcise their infants the Abrahamic family. What's the problem here? There's a, there's a jump there. The problem is the believer is not the covenant mediator. Christ is. The, it's not the believer and his seed that needs to receive the sign of the new covenant. It's Christ and his seed that is to receive the sign of the new covenant. R. Fowler Wright puts it this way. The genealogical principle, which is this and to your seed. So you believe and you're baptized and to your seed. The genealogical principle continues without revocation, but not without reinterpretation. This is vital to understand. Denominations split over this issue. 
So it is still the, the mediatorial head in their seed that is to receive the sign. Abraham and his seed, Christ and his seed. Who is Christ's seed? Galatians 3.7, those who have faith. Galatians 3.29, if you are of Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Are you following me here? Christ does not have physical seed. Jesus is not a grandpa. The new covenant community consists of the seed of Christ, the covenant head. The seed of Christ is spiritual. Those who have faith, it's believers. Look down in Galatians 6, 6, famous passage on this very issue. First, before we read it, Paul's going to give us a rule, and he calls it the rule of the new creation, and he's going to bless those who follow this rule. And the rule is that ethnicity matters no longer. So let's, let's read it then. For both circumcision and uncircumcision, that's what I mean by ethnicity, they mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. May peace come to all those who follow this standard, or perhaps your translation says rule. Peace and mercy be upon them, even the Israel of God, or and upon the Israel of God, depending on your translation. There's a lot of debate about this and, this chi here. But all responsible parties agree that Grammar alone won't settle this one. Charles Ryrie, um, basically the textbook of uh, dispensationalism. I don't know if you all who've uh, been around longer than me noticed, but the book was originally dispensationalism today, right? And then it was revised in a, no longer today. Now this is normative dispensationalism, mostly to respond to the progressive uh, you know, the apostates, according to Ryrie, they're progressive dispensationalists. So it's dispensationalism yesterday, today, and forever. It's normative dispensationalism. So he's, he's, he's a guy I kind of like to interact with. He's the spokesperson for traditional dispensationalism or revise or whatever moniker you want to give it. Uh, very influential. In fact, I, at the school I'm at now, the first time I'm in, actually, this very same convocation, I go in, and there is this, for lack of better words, um, shrine to Charles Ryrie. Three big shelves. I just thought, oh, what's going on? Why am I here? What am I doing? So forgive me if I'm a little harsh on, uh, on dispensationalism. It's that I've just been surrounded uh, in my context by, by old school dispensationalism. But Ryrie writes this. The premillennialist says, and I already got to rant a little bit more. Uh, for you, th- this is just a matter of honesty, and Dr. Hamilton would, would totally agree here. Ryrie's not speaking for premillennialism here. He's speaking for dispensational premillennialism, and there is a massive difference. James Hamilton is a rabid premillennialist, but he's not a dispensational premillennialist. So Ryrie, uh, Ryrie just lumps them all together, but he, he's, he's advocating a certain type of, of premillennialism. But he says the premillennialist says that Paul's simply singling out Christian Jews for special recognition in the benediction. I, I think that is the opposite of what he's doing. I think it's contrary to the content of the letter as a whole, which focuses on the unity of Jews and Gentiles. It's extremely difficult for me to believe at the very end of the letter he has a special benediction. I think the Kai here should be understood ep- exegetically or just in an explanatory way. And I'm, I'm not reading from it, but I think the new NIV, the 2011 uh, revision, nails it when they put peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, dash to the Israel of God. In other words... He's defining who it is. That's what the, uh, the Kai's functioning there. And again, if we had time, we would unpack 
this theme in, in the storyline of, of, of Genesis itself. As I mentioned, uh, Jacob is told that a nation and indeed an assembly of nations will come from you, which is a little bit different than being blessed by you. They will come from you, and kings will descend from you. And there's many, many, many Old Testament passages where this shouldn't surprise us that uh, we don't have time this time, but perhaps in the future talk will develop uh, some of the big ones. Isaiah 19. Uh, don't turn there, but this this passage, it would have been shocking. Isaiah 19, 25, where, it's, where God says in the future, Egypt, recall who Egypt is. Remember, Egypt in the biblical storyline, they're not the good guys. Egypt, my people, God says. Unbelievable. Assyria, do you remember Assyria in the storyline? That's the new Egypt. Assyria, my handiwork. Unbelievable. I would love to see what the Pharisee does with that passage. I mean, say he's, he's doing his, his family worship at home and he's been reflecting on the Isaiah scroll and Isaiah 18 and the next night, Isaiah 20, and the curious Hebrew boy, Daddy, what about Isaiah 19? Mind your business, boy. <laughs> Daddy, I thought every word of God was pure. Hush, son. You know, what do you do with that? What do you do with Isaiah 19? It's like the uh, egalitarian in 1 Timothy 2 or the, the Armenian in Romans 9. What do you do? What do you do with these types of passages? Zechariah 2.11. Many nations will be joining themselves to the Lord. So we, we, could, we, could, we could add to this. Isaiah 56, Psalm 87. And know well back in Galatians that, that this benediction that Paul gives for those who follow this rule of the new creation, this benediction is denied to anyone who allows ethnicity to be a criterion for identifying the people of God. Uh, Gary talked talked about this already, so I won't I won't mention any of the uh, the other passages. But there's many other passages we could go to. We see that the offspring of Abraham experiences a messianic transformation as one moves from the Abrahamic covenant to the new covenant. Gary mentioned John one eleven. Uh, those who are children of God not because of blood, because they believed in Jesus, not because of ethnicity. Romans 2, I think, is talking about Gentile Christians or Jew Christians, not Jews in particular, though, that, uh, that being a Jew is not outward. Circumcision is not something visible. It's inward, by the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. Spirit, letter, new covenant language, obviously. Romans 4, Abraham is the father. It's not merely ge- a genealogical fatherhood. He's a benedictor of, of spiritual blessing. 1 Corinthians 10.1, I want you to know, Corinthian Gentile brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. I don't think this is merely an analogy. Philippians 3, again, you have that kind of that insert of, of Judaizers. And Paul warns them, and Judaizers would have been very concerned with being clean. And they would have been very concerned with good works. And they would have wanted to set themselves apart from pagans. And Paul very polemically says, watch out for the dogs, unclean animals. Watch out for evil workers. They're about good works. Their works are evil. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Appealing there to 1 Kings 19 with the prophets of Baal that would manipulate their flesh trying to get their God to be pleased with them. Paul's very polemical here on those who would want to impose it. Gary mentioned the one new man in Ephesians 2. Uh, Ephesians 2 is very clear on the unity of the, of the, new, the new man, the church. So Hayes concludes... The church discovers its true identity only in relation to the sacred story of Israel, and the sacred story of Israel discovers its full significance. So Paul passionately believed only in relation to God's unfolding design for salvation 
of Gentiles in the church. So that's offspring in Galatians 3. It's Jesus and it's the body of Jesus, those who trusted him. Now let's look at blessing. Blessing there in Genesis 12 is very important. The, the root happens five times just in two verses. And blessing restores all that's good, all the good that God has given mankind in the beginning. Blessing, as Richard Bauckham notes, refers to God's characteristically generous and abundant giving of all good to his creatures and his continual renewal of the abundance of created life. Blessing is God's provision for human flourishing. And again here, this is where that, that article I mentioned by Hamilton in Tyndale Bulletin 58.2, the same article you can find on his website, is, uh, is helpful. <clears throat> he shows how the blessings of Abraham reverse the curses of Genesis 3. Think about the curses of Genesis 3. You have conflict between the seed and the serpent, <clears throat> the seed of the woman, and then the woman and the man. Excuse me. <clears throat> I've had allergies ever since we moved to Fort Worth. So those are the fundamental curses of Genesis 3, and the blessings of Abraham reverse those. So the conflict between the man and the woman is addressed in the promise of a great nation. Reproduction. The conflict between the man and the ground is addressed by the promise of the land to be given to Abraham's offspring. And the conflict between the, uh, obviously we know the conflict about the, uh, the, the, the seeds, the battle of the seeds. And in Abraham, it's that those who bless you will be blessed, those who curse you will be cursed. So this <clears throat> blessing is a reversal of the curse, in other words. That's the main point. But even here in Genesis, blessing is not really spelled out. We're, we're left to wait from progressive revelation to find out exactly what the nature of this blessing. But we do see in Genesis 17 that the essence of the blessing is a special relationship with God, right? What's the famous covenant formula? I will be your God and you will be my people, Genesis 17. But the question that Israel would have been asking, we ask is, how is that going to happen in light of sin? How can we have a special relationship with the Lord in light of how fallen we are and how holy he is? And, and Paul answers that. Look back at Galatians 3, 8 and 9. Now the scripture saw in advance. Now notice, just, just notice the personification of scripture here. Scripture saw in advance. As Warfield reminds us, God, what God says, scripture says. Scripture is personified. Scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and told the good news ahead of time to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. The main verb here is justify. Scripture, for, scripture saw in advance or foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Excuse me, the main verb here is, is preach the gospel. Euangelizo. I bring that up to make an important point here. There's a lot of talk about defining the gospel today, which is always a good thing going back to the scripture to say, what is the gospel? And here, based on the grammar, you have the main verb, preach the gospel, and an adverbial participle is justified the, the Gentiles by faith. Main verb, adverbial participle, modifying that main verb. I'm bringing that up just to say, what you all agree with, is that we can't talk about the gospel if we don't talk about justification. We don't have to use that language, but in Paul's mind, uh, they go together. 
So I uh, don't have to use the language of, of right standing, but the, the, the heart of the gospel, as we always, as we always preach, is that it is a, we are declared right by faith, not by works of law. And that's the blessing here. That's how Paul defines the blessing of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham is sola fide for the nations in Galatians 3, 8, and 9. That's how we can have a special relationship. The sin problem's gone because of Christ. The blessing of the nations is forgiveness of sins and being included within the people of God. Romans 4 says the same. The blessing of Abraham is justification by faith. And Abraham is the model, verse 9 tells us. And this is contrary to Jewish tradition that would have us believe things like this. From Sirach uh, 44 says, Abraham kept the law of the Most High and entered into covenant with him. Kept the law, but the law wasn't even around yet, Paul would say in chapter or in 1 Maccabees, was not Abraham found faithful when tested, and it was reckoned to him as righteous? It's ironic, isn't it? Because isn't that the opposite of what Genesis 15, 6 says? It says he wasn't that he was found faithful, it was that he had faith. He believed in the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So Paul reads Genesis 12 in light of Genesis 15, and which is what Galatians 3, 6 quotes. He believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. So all the nations of the earth are blessed through Abraham, but how? Through faith, just like Abraham. So blessing, then, we're asking about blessing. Blessing is a right standing before God through faith. But he has more to say. Look down at verse 14. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. And notice that there's two purpose clauses. They're just coordinate. The purpose was that we would receive the blessing of Abraham and that we would receive the promised spirit through faith. So Paul is equating the blessing of Abraham with the promised spirit through faith. But how can he do that? Do you remember any mention of the gift of the spirit in Genesis 12 through 17? How can Paul do this? Some systems of theology can't handle what Paul's doing here. Clearly, the original, a narrow reading of the original purpose alone doesn't exhaust its meaning. There is a fuller sense. Again, we must be canonical exegetes. If the, if the narrow grammatical historical method of exegesis excludes or ignores the redemptive historical setting of the fulfillment of God's purpose in Christ, and we need to adjust our hermeneutic. Dennis Johnson writes this, when any hermeneutic method disqualifies or seems to disqualify by pitting an Old Testament text's original meaning against its interpretation in the new, the ways that Jesus, the Word of God incarnate, interpreted the Word of God written and taught his apostles to do, this dissonance, dissonance is a signal that something is seriously amiss. So I submit that Paul interprets Genesis 12 in light of its broader canonical context. Context always starts at the sentence level, and then the paragraph, and then the section, and then the letter, and then the epoch, and then ultimately the canon is always our final context. I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's reading the Abrahamic promises in light of the storyline, and he's reading the Abrahamic promises in light of the new covenant. What is the, one, of the fun, one of the two fundamental blessings of the new covenant? Final forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is found all throughout Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37, Isaiah 32, Isaiah 44, Joel 2, on and on and on. The Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant was, was poured out on selective individuals for selective tasks, and it was temporary. That's why we as New Covenant believers should never pray like David in Psalm 51, Lord, take not your spirit from me. 
It's an old covenant reality. In fact, think about what we know, what we're given in the Old Testament. There's only about as many in this room that we know that were indwelt by the Spirit, the Spirit uh, operated on in a significant way, and 70 of them would have been the elders in Numbers 11. There's just not a lot. That wouldn't be the case in the New Covenant, though. In the New Covenant, there would be a universal distribution of the Spirit down to every last member. Numbers 11, Moses said, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Long for that day. Indeed, it happened at Pentecost and has been happening since. That's why he's the promised Holy Spirit. Anthony Holcomb picks up on this and says, The reception of the spirit means that one has become a participant in the new mode of existence associated with the future age and now partakes of the powers of the age to come. End quote. So the the Galatians, their experience of the Spirit, which we read about in the first five verses, is a sign that God's end-time restoration of Israel has begun, just like the prophets promised. The Spirit is the promised blessing made to Abraham, and the Spirit is the means by which the promise is being realized in all of Abraham's true children. So what is the blessing of Abraham according to Galatians 3? It's a right standing with God through faith, and it's the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Abrahamic covenant finds its fulfillment in the New Covenant, and the gift of the Spirit is at the hearts of the New Covenant. The third issue, land. Again, just let my presupposition, I think the land promise is included in 2 Corinthians 1.20, that no matter how many of the promises of God, they are yes in Christ. I think the land promise is included in how many promises God has ever made. And when considering a New Testament theology of land, we've got to remember that land's not new with Abraham. Land was important from day one, right? Creation. The idea of this unbroken communion with the Lord in paradise became the goal toward which God was moving in his restoration project. Creation, land is important, and it points to what we now know, new creation. But in Galatians 3, with this Abraham narrative, Paul doesn't even mention land which is, would seem strange. W.D. W. Davies, in his really important work on the land, says it's not that he, that he forgot about it, obviously, but it's a deliberate rejection. But I don't know if I would go that far as we're going to see. He speaks of, uh, of Jerusalem. Paul often uses the language of promise with no mention of the lands. And we can't just look for the word land. When we're thinking about a theology of land, we've got to think about land, temple, Zion, Jerusalem, mountain. There's a lot of of words and concepts that we're dealing with. When Paul does bring it up, he tends to universalize it. Romans 4.13, Ephesians 6. Abraham was to inherit the cosmos, world, not gay, lands, or earth. So there's no reference to land here in Galatians, but there is reference to Jerusalem in chapter 4, which same concept. And Paul doesn't portray a very positive view of Jerusalem's future in this chapter. And the agitators, as we mentioned in the beginning, these these Judaizers would have used the Abraham narrative, and they probably, maybe not, but probably used Genesis 21 to say that Gentiles are of Ishmael and must be circumcised, and they are the the true heirs of the promise. So Paul here, I think, Paul's going back to Genesis 21, and in the language of Richard Hayes, he's doing hermeneutical jujitsu, going back to their source and flipping it on them. So let's, let's look at 4 and read 21 to 31. Tell me, those of you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born 
according to the impulse of the flesh, while the one by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. These things are illustrations. For the women represent the two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, probably uh, from Psalm 87. We don't have time, but note that down. I think this Jerusalem is our mother is from Psalm 87, verse 27. For it is written, Rejoice, childless woman who does not give birth. Burst into song and shout, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate are many, more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as then, the child born according to the flesh persecuted the one born according to the Spirit. So also now. But what does the Scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son. For the son of the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So, so just to summarize, Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac's not of the free woman, not, was born through, uh, through promise. Ishmael's the son of the slave woman, born according to the flesh. I think in this context, born according to uh, human effort. There are two covenants. I think they're the old and the new, but as we've seen, there's not, uh, there is continuity between the Abrahamic and the new. Hagar's Mount Sinai, bearing children of slavery. She's the present Jerusalem. That word present would hearken us back all the way to 1-4 where Jesus came to deliver us from the present evil age. Her children are those who depend on her. She's no longer our mother, though, Paul says. Our mother is the Jerusalem above, and she's free. To say that the Jerusalem above is our mother is to say we belong to the new age. Judaizers were claiming Abraham as their father, Jerusalem for their mother. Paul's flipping the script and saying, no, Abraham is our father. Those who are in Christ, Jerusalem is our mother. Those born according to promise. And to substantiate his claim, he appeals to Isaiah 54. That's what he quotes there. Isaiah 54, which is about the future restoration of Israel, the future glory of Jerusalem. And there we read, Isaiah 54 comes right after Isaiah 53. Right in Isaiah 53, there's this suffering servant who's cut off. Well, how can the covenant be fulfilled if this servant is cut off? Doesn't have any offspring? How can this work if if the servant, Isaiah 53, doesn't have any offspring? Verse 3, well, as we mentioned earlier, the the offspring of the servant is spiritual offspring, not physical offspring. That's why the servant can die without physical offspring and yet see his seed, Isaiah 53, 10-11. Again, wish we had time to go there. So Jerusalem was a type pointing forward to the new Jerusalem, and the new Jerusalem is the church here. This is similar to the author of Hebrews in chapter 12. You have come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festival gathering and to the assembly, church, ecclesy of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So the promise of land points beyond itself. I think we can see the parallels in, in Revelation. If you notice, just jot this down for time's sake. Revelation 17, 1 and 3, about, the, about Babylon, the, the prostitute, and then the, the introduction of the new bride, the church, the wife of the Lamb uh, in Revelation 21, 9 and 10. I think we have uh, imagery there of the, the bride replacing the harlot. So land points beyond itself. The promised land was temporary and typological. N.T. Wright notes that the land, like the, the land, like the Torah, 
was a temporary stage in the long purpose of the God of Abraham. Not a bad thing now done away with, but a good and necessary thing now fulfilled in Christ and the Spirit. It is, it is as though the land were a great advanced metaphor for the design of God that his people should eventually bring the whole world, Romans 4.13, cosmos, into submission to his healing reign. God's whole purpose now goes beyond Jerusalem and the land to the whole world. It's universalized. So again, to pick on, on, on Dr. Ryrie, I think he just completely misses this when he says this. He says, if the yet unfulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament made in the Abrahamic, Davidic, and New Covenants are to be literally fulfilled, there must be a future period, the millennium, in which they can be fulfilled for the church is not now fulfilling them. I was at a recent eschatology conference and, the, and Wayne House was the main uh, the dispensational advocate. He said that Genesis 12 has nothing to do with the nations, has nothing to do with, excuse me, not the nations, with the church. It has nothing to do with Rome and he said it has nothing to do with PNG. I just walked out. No, I'm just kidding. I just shook my head. Uh, I think it has everything to do with it. I think we're going to see more of that uh, tomorrow. The land has been universalized. Many of you have heard the helpful analogy by Christopher Wright, and he talks about if a father gave, I think it was originated with Christopher Wright. Greg Bill uses it as well. But if not, it's helpful in thinking about these things. If a father promised his son uh, a horse and carriage, uh, you know, early of the 20th century, he says, son, when you, when you turn 21, he's five years old, when you turn 21, I'm going to give you a horse and carriage. But by the time the son turned 21, there were vehicles, there were cars, and the son gave him I mean, the father gave the son a car instead of a horse and carriage. And Christopher Rice says, it would be a strange son who would accuse his father of breaking his promise just because there was no horse. And even stranger if, in spite of having received the far superior motor car, the son insisted that the promise would only be fulfilled if a horse also materialized, since that was the literal promise. It's obvious that with the change in circumstances unknown at the time of the promise was made, the father has more than kept his promise. In fact, he's done so in a way that surpasses the original words of the promise, which were necessarily limited by the mode of transport available at that time. The promise was made in terms understood at the time. It was fulfilled in light of new historical events. So in Galatians 4, to use Davies' language, the land has been Christified. Being in Christ replaces being in the land. Being in Christ frees us from the law, and it frees us from the land narrowly conceived. And some Abraham promised numerous offspring, and they continue to increase. The vision is grand. We ought to be optimistic. We're blessed with being declared right through faith. Through Christ, we've been included within the people of God. We're blessed with the gift of the Spirit who guarantees us that God's future is now here, and there is yet more to come. The Jerusalem above is our mother. I hope this uh, little exercise has helped you have confirmation that indeed all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. Let's pray again. We'll do some questions. Father, again, we just want to give thanks. We're not thankful enough for your word, and uh, we're so thankful to live at this period of history where we get to look back on so many of your grand and mighty acts, and uh, we marvel at your plan and how you've summed up, as you say in Ephesians, your goal is to have him be preeminent. That's your goal, Father. And it all redounds to your glory. And we, we marvel at how you have and are summing up, bringing to a head all things in Christ. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.
So we've got 30 minutes to talk about something or clarify anything or disagree. My name is Margie Harriman. We're from Watertown, New York. This is a question asked by Dummy. What version are you reading? <laughs> I love that. I'm actually glad you asked. Uh, and uh, I'm a big advocate. Uh, it's the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Um, it's been revised a few times. I, the, the NIV, as you know, has been revised, and it's, uh, it's good. They just made some decisions with the gender that they didn't treat each decision case by case. Still use it, but in my circles, uh, I, would, I would be still using it, but in some of my circles, it's just very frowned upon. And, uh, and as I've looked into the Holman Christian, I actually like it better. I have a document comparing the NIV and the Holman Christian Standard Bible and the ESV uh, that if anybody wants, come, come see me, and I'd be glad to send you that, or maybe we can post it or something. But, uh, yeah, I really like this translation. I haven't been reading it for long, but very pleased with it. Also, it bolds in the New Testament. It bolds every time a uh, Old Testament is quoted. So it kind of jumps out at you, which for us, that's, that's usually quite important. One last thing, uh, two last things. It, it, it rids of all the archaic language, which I think is important in our, our context today. People are biblically illiterate. So if we can get rid of the beloveds and the beholds and the, those sorts of things. And then finally, uh, often, not always, it translates Christos as Messiah, which is better. Christ is not the last name, it's a title. And then often, uh, it translates Yahweh as Yahweh. The Lord said his name is Yahweh, so we got to call him Yahweh. Hi, I'm uh, P.J. Wenzel, I'm from Columbus, Ohio, Dublin Baptist Church, and um, I'm newer to old covenant theology, new covenant theology, so this is all kind of blowing my, my mind a little bit, but um, can you talk about how new creation, uh, well, back up, how the land promise might be fulfilled in the future, like maybe the new creation like, I get the idea that maybe it's fulfilled in several ways, like maybe us being a new creation in Christ, and then also maybe the new world, or later on, like eschatologically. Can you talk about that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think ultimately, this is why I use the, the analogy with right at the end. Ultimately, um, looking for a narrow piece of land is far too small a vision. It's the whole world. And this, this is gaining... Um, popularity now. For some reason, there was more of a spiritual vision of heaven. You've got uh, books like Randy Alcorn on heaven. N.T. Wright's been really helpful here on emphasizing new creation. That's the end goal. And most today all agree that um, the end goal is new creation. In fact, I'm, my advisor is Craig Blazing, who's a progressive dispensationalist who wouldn't agree with a lot of what I said today. But his one of his big passions in life is to get new creation back on people's minds. Um, so it, for him, at the end of the day, that's the same. So yeah, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, I think there is, a, there is aspects in like Galatians 4, I think New Jerusalem is talking about the church. Some want to say, well, that's talking about uh, New Heavens and New Earth, but I just think the language there is talking about people. And even in Revelation 21 and 22, what's often missed is this, it's a, it's a, the New Jerusalem is a people, not a place, the bride. So I want to follow the text. It's, it's become... Uh, it's become popular to say, say it's all new creation. I think some of the texts, so Hebrews 12, Galatians 4, talking about the people. So the people are, but and then, of course, we're going to have resurrected bodies. We're going to live somewhere. And that's the new earth where uh, not, not going back to Eden, but it's Eden-like conditions, but all the better. Is that what you're looking for? Yeah. 
Well, yeah, I think, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Already, not yet. I mean, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any, and by the way, this is where the NIV is really, really good on translation. It says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation has come. And a lot of translations say he is a new creature. The problem is creature, catissus, and Paul's never people. It's the creation. So in Paul, if you're in Christ, new creation has come. So yeah, there is a, I think there's an already not yet where we're still waiting. We're still waiting on uh, resurrection, glorification, new earth. Hi, Rick Vandermark. I'm from Dover, Pennsylvania. Um, with respect to the question of the land promise, would it not be more accurate to suggest that the promise is the whole universe rather than just merely the world? Because it says in like in Psalms and Hebrews, he puts all things under his feet. Well, the whole things would be the universe, not just the world. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I didn't mean to make that distinction. Well, I, I thought you made the distinction of just the world. And that's why I thought I wanted to get some clarification. No, yeah, I didn't mean that. Okay. We're on the same page. Shmoyer from Liverpool. You mentioned the Spirit's work. We've been doing some discussing, some discussion about this in our, in our congregation. And it's probably one of a weak area of, of my theology anyway. Being a good Calvinist, I understand that people are totally depraved, and I'm going to make an assumption here that I think is pretty good, before and after the cross. Regeneration is a requirement of the Spirit's work. How does that fit in with the Spirit's activity in the New Covenant compared to the Spirit's activity in the life of the regenerated one in the old. Okay, let me, I may not answer your question, so you may want to stick around, but as I mentioned, um, the, the, D.A. Carson's called it a tribal, uh, tribal working. I think that's a helpful way to speak of the old covenant, the Spirit in the Old Covenant. In fact, another plug for, for James Hamilton. He's got a book on this whole issue. It's his dissertation was on that. Anyone know, Jack, what's the name of the book? God's Indwelling Presence. Um, so, so in my view then, the, the Spirit um, indwelled people in the Old Covenant temporarily and for selective things, by the Zalel in the building. Uh, you know, you have your, your various things. In the New Covenant, though, that's universal. Uh, Regeneration is a whole different question. And honestly, this is where I'm a good, re- how do you say it, Riesingerian John Riesinger taught me us one thing very well. If the Bible doesn't speak to it, it's just, let's just close our mouths. Uh, so when we ask about or Old Covenant, say the Old Covenant remnant, and talk, asking about regeneration and those things, we just, we're not told. So here's what we have to do. We have to bring our systematic theology and bring it over. And that can be legitimate at times, but uh, I would rather just be quiet and say we're not told uh, how the Spirit, I'm comfortable with this language, the Spirit operated on the remnant. Uh, in, in order to trust in the Lord and, and have faith, but weren't indwelt. John 7, John 15, there's language very clearly that there's a new work of the Spirit in, in terms of indwellment um, that weren't there in the old. John's whole, I mean, uh, James Hamilton's whole book on that, though, is on that issue, and he has a whole spectrum of people that are more on continuity, more on discontinuity. He's got charts, so it'd be a good book to look at. Mike. Mike Cargobright, Grace Chapel in uh, Kingwood, West Virginia. <clears throat> the promise of seed, land, and blessing made to Abraham. Could you just speak a little bit about the promise that he would be a great nation? And then in light of Peter, talking about a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God. Thanks for the 
can you reword it? Reword it so I'm sure I'm answering your question. Well, I just the promise made to Abraham when we looked at the three, uh -huh. the promise of a great nation. What does that entail? How how do we see that being fulfilled in Christ? Are we talking in Christ. church? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, I may not answer your question, but uh, I mean, we see it happen very clearly, right? Um, it, you know, even in Genesis and Exodus, we see that happen. Uh, they're a nation to be reckoned with, and they make Pharaohs get a little nervous <clears throat> because they're getting so big, so they have to do something about it. Uh, and then Joshua, you know, there's the end of Joshua, there's the uh, implication that even every promise was fulfilled. Now, obviously, that doesn't exhaust it. So we see it fulfilled, and we see it there in a, in a short time in terms of Davidic leadership under Solomon, but it falls apart really quickly in terms of nationhood. It's a good question. I haven't thought about it, but 1 Peter 2 clearly picks it up uh, from Exodus 19 that the church now is a great nation. Our citizenship is not earthly. It's in heaven, Philippians 3. And we're to walk as worthy citizens, Philippians 1.27. Um, so it picks it up in that sense. Is that what you mean? This, the church is, a, is fulfilling the vocation of Israel? Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, next time as well, on what that might look like in terms of mission. Uh, and if, we don't, if I don't answer it more fully, we can talk more. All right, thank you. Some coffee.